Are you ready to know what you don't know about Privacy Pros? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast by KZN Privacy Experts. The podcast to launch, progress and excel your career as a Privacy Pro. Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy. Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We're an official IAPP training partner. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy, or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you. and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a data privacy analyst at Kazian Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislations, as well as any key developments and decisions by supervisory authorities. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, who is a fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at Kazian Privacy Experts. He is an established and comprehensively qualified privacy professional with a demonstrable track record solving enterprise-wide data privacy and data security challenges for SMEs through complex global organizations. He is a revered global privacy thought leader, world-class trainer, and published author for publications such as Thomson Reuters, The Independent, Euronews, as well as numerous industry publications. He makes regular appearances in the media and has been dubbed the king of GDPR by the BBC. To date, he has provided privacy and GDPR compliance solutions to organizations across six continents and in over 30 jurisdictions, helping to safeguard the personal data of over a billion data subjects worldwide. Welcome, Jamal. Hi, Jamila. How are you today? I'm all right. Thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic. You know, I'm so happy. I'm I'm sure the listeners can hear how much I'm smiling. It's because we have such an amazing and inspiring guest on our podcast today. And I'm really delighted that she was able to make the time to join us. So why don't you go ahead and tell us who that is? I'm excited too. So our guest today is Emerald DeLeo. She is a globally recognized privacy and data ethics expert, as well as an award-winning entrepreneur, advisory board member, and lecturer. She is currently the global head of privacy at Logitech. Prior to joining, she founded privacy tech company Eurocomply, for which she won various awards, such as the European Young Innovator of the Year in 2017 and a 30 Under 30 Award. She started Eurocomply after writing her master's thesis on the GDPR in 2012, and Forbes named her one of 100 European female founders to watch, and she speaks regularly at leading conferences like TEDx and institutions such as MIT Sloan School of Business and the European Parliament. She is a Marshall Memorial Fellow with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and she is an advocate for female leaders and is passionate about closing the funding and pay gap for women. Her qualifications include a Bachelor of Laws, a Master's in E-Law and Intellectual Property, a Master's in Business Information Systems, and the SIPI certification. She is also a Harvard Law Certified in Copyright Law and is continuing her executive education at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Welcome, Emerald. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We're excited to have you too. And as we always do on the podcast, we'll start off with an icebreaker question. So today's one is, do you have any hidden talents? 
This always surprises people, but before I even ever went to law school, I used to write for Photoshop Creative Magazine, which was actually a UK publication. They were based in Bournemouth. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you heard of like Advanced Photoshop Magazine, Photoshop Creative Magazine. But back in the day, this is kind of where all the digital artists would go. And I ended up being a tutorial writer for them because I was wow. good at digital painting. Now, those skills have calcified since then because I just don't have time. <laughs> and it's really bad and I should do more of it. And every year I commit to doing more privacy law gets introduced. And that's the end of that. <laughs> Imagine you coming up with some pretty amazing graphics and memes for breaking down privacy laws and cases and commenting on what's happening around the world. I wish that's where my flair was. I mainly did fantasy art. So like oh. elves and pixies and mermaids and also quite a lot of animals, like cute, fluffy baby tigers mm. and and wolves and things like that. But it's still, it's on my website, emeraldsleo.com, which is just a mishmash of anything that I feel I need to talk about on the internet. Not always privacy. And then there's a random art gallery on the side. For right. We will link that below. I'm sure the <laughs> listeners will love to check that out. That sounds really cool. Um, so did you do that before your master's, did you say, before university? Before university, like I uh, I was in high school and I was not really well organized in my head as regards what I wanted to do. So I kind of floated around for a bit being a fitness instructor. And I was also doing this artwork at the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any, you know, ambition to do it professionally. It was just that I was approached by yeah, the yeah. Dutch version of the publication. And then eventually it ended up like full six, seven page tutorials, step by step, how to paint a lion in Photoshop and things like that. So yeah, it all sort of happened, but I really enjoyed it. It was one of those kind of things that I would start at night and then sometimes would paint to like 5 a.m. in the morning, which is so far removed from my life now where I'm usually up at five in the morning after sleeping. (laughs) So um, yeah, it's, it's funny how things change, but I could have happily done that. But I think I was always very ambitious and I had to get myself to law school and eventually ended up in privacy. Talk to us about how you ended up in privacy and what do you love most about working in privacy? I'll start with the latter. You're in your happy place where your own morals and values line up with what you do on a day-to-day basis. I think if you can achieve that in your career, I think that might be more valuable than, you know, follow your passion, which I think the data is a little bit, from what I've read, diverges on that a little bit on how valuable it is to follow your passion. I think it's really a healthy place to be if you can look yourself in the eye in the morning and be happy with what you're doing for the rest of the week. So I think that's probably what I like most about working in privacy is that I feel like I'm doing something that matters and that I'm helping and previously have helped companies do the right thing. And not because companies didn't want to do the right thing. It's just that sometimes it's hard to see that something is not the right thing or is the wrong thing or can have really negative consequences. And I think like I usually don't come across people with malicious intent, but still bad stuff can happen when data isn't properly used. Um, And in terms of how I got into privacy, so I studied in the Netherlands. So I grew up there. I, I lived there for 25 years of my life. Fun fact, the most Google thing about me, like the first is Emerald DeLeo and the second is Emerald DeLeo age. So I think this should probably give a little bit away about how old I actually 
actually am old enough. Uh, so uh, I studied in the Netherlands until I was 25. And then I moved to Ireland in 2012. So that now makes me 34 for anyone who wanted to know. And I went there to do my master's in Elon intellectual property law. I got a scholarship and the whole idea behind that scholarship was you go abroad and then you bring all of your knowledge back to the Netherlands. I kind of stuck around here. Yeah. So um, I actually got the GDPR handed to me in the first draft of it in 2012. So really early, um, I think it was a January 2012 version of the GDPR. I think the fines were still like 10% or 100 million or something along those lines. I even wow. abbreviated it to DPR in my thesis because GDPR was not a well-known term back then. Mm. And I think I spent enough time with it to know that it was going to be a big deal. I'd love to tell you that, you know, I saw the whole privacy changes happening before I ever saw the GDPR. I didn't. It's just I spent nine months writing a thesis on it. And for some reason, even with no business experience, just from reading it, I was kind of thinking, who's going to have time to read this thing? in the level of detail that you need to read it in, in order to be a DPO, for example, because that's the one thing that really stood out to me as I was writing the thesis, even though it was on the right to be forgotten, which is, of course, a very popular thesis subject still. Back then, what really stood out to me was like, who's going to be an expert in this stuff? Obviously, that was a tiny bit ignorant because there was obviously other experts in it even before then but not as many as there are now. So I was kind of going, how do I scale myself? So from that, um, I'm a very stubborn person. I was kind of going, yeah, but I can fix this. I could scale what I know. So I decided that I needed to become an entrepreneur and everyone thought I was insane, particularly my mother who was like, you go through all these law degrees and then you don't actually become a solicitor <laughs> or a lawyer for any US people listening. I'm not an attorney. And I was like, you know, it has to be this. And I was really hell bent on that. But I figured I didn't know enough after <laughs> going to three different law schools. I figured I needed another degree. Pure imposter syndrome. I was like, I, if I'm starting a software business, I need to know something about business and data, right? And I felt I had all the legal knowledge, but I was reading some quite technical papers back, like this was in the time where cloud computing was like taking off. So it was all about, you know, data fragmentation is problematic for, for privacy. And I was like, yes, it is. And then there was a whole paragraph that I didn't understand. So it was like, I better go and do another degree. But while I was doing that degree, I know that technically my LinkedIn probably says I started my company in 20. 15, but I was already working on it. I just held off on incorporating until I actually had to. So I was writing business plans, applying for incubators, doing all the startup-y things. Yeah, and yeah. like nothing really happened for me until January, I think it was 2017, because I had submitted an application for this competition in Brussels, like you could win European Young Innovator of the Year. And I was like, no one in Ireland really thinks the GDPR will ever be a thing. It's like, mm -hmm. it's going to be a thing for, um, but I had been saying it for so long. And, you know, the date kept being pushed out. I'm sure you know this as well, Jamal and, and Jamila, that, you know, we kept thinking it would come into force, but it kept being delayed. And then, you know, I won that competition and that kind of gave me a bit of a PR boost and then GDPR started kicking off in the media. And then all of a sudden, I was this person who had some credibility and had been talking about it for a while. So I ended up running a startup for a good few years. Did you enjoy that experience of finding your own company? 
genuinely, the first few years were absolute hell. It's not for the faint-hearted, like lots of respect for all you entrepreneurs out there, (laughs) including yourselves. It's not an easy thing, right? Like when you're part of a startup, you don't even have to be the founder. It can be quite a rocky journey when things aren't going your way. So what happened for me was I kept pitching people this essentially a solution that would help you assess your own privacy risk, but also the risk across your data supply chain due to this whole, you know, you're responsible for all your processors. This was sort of new for people at the time that it was like, you can't just contract out of your liability. You're going to be responsible for all your processors. So I was like, it would be probably kind of helpful to know how high risk your processors actually are. So that's basically what the technology would do. But back then, people, first of all, I was a female entrepreneur. I was reasonably young. I really looked like a female entrepreneur. I think just quite girly and probably looked a bit younger than I actually was as well. I'm hoping that was a factor. (laughs) But um, I think I didn't have the right profile that you'd normally see in a tech entrepreneur. And I think that is still a problem for women. I think it's like 3% of all venture capital goes to female founders. So I think I I was probably facing a bit of that at the time. And I just couldn't get it funded. So that was really hard. I did end up getting some funding from Enterprise Ireland and from the NDRC, which was amazing. But it was that's the type of funding that will kind of just help you build a prototype. It's not the proper, I need a good amount of cash to hire my people, build out my software, do all the things. Now, eventually I did get these opportunities, but they were in the US and I was just not really willing to move there because I had already moved country. Mm-hmm. So eventually it turned into a technology and consultancy firm and I was doing really well. Once things started going really well for me, it was amazing. First three years or so were terrible. 2018 mm-hmm. happened. Everything was amazing because I was the go-to person and I got to go everywhere. And I think when you hear a bio, it sounds like it's only the highlight reel, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember being in Cork City with my mother going out for a meal and a drink on a Friday night and just almost being in tears because it was going so bad. Like I was just getting rejection after rejection constantly. And I'm a tough cookie, but it does wear you down. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was a mixed bag. I enjoyed it once it started going really well. And it was an amazing experience. I learned so much. And I think that's probably the most valuable to me. It wasn't just, you know, making money. It was actually building something from scratch, learning how to get people to rally behind you, which is a really Mm. important skill and asking for help. Also very important skill and also really important for privacy professionals because you can't do it alone, no matter how good you are, especially if you're in-house, you're going to need to rally people behind you in the business. So I would say, I thought that I had to pivot as well, right? Because I couldn't get the funding to actually do what I had set out to do. And then my business just kind of became a consultancy firm, which wasn't really what I loved. You know, consultancy is not for everyone. And I became a professional speaker, essentially, um, Mm -hmm. for a lot of it. And while that was really, really fun, I still really, really wanted to build out the tech. So it it was a little bit frustrating as well. So I think generally, and I think you hear this from a lot of entrepreneurs, is it's a roller coaster. It's it's up and down. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly relate having a a number of businesses before I uh, really focused on data privacy with Casian. 
And I think the most valuable thing that I take away from my experience earlier on is when I first started and got into business, I learned so much more about myself than I ever knew. And for me, that was the most valuable thing to take away from that, all of the things I've discovered for myself, learning about me and learning how to communicate, how to negotiate, how to persuade, how to influence, how to go about things and not just say things as they are, how to have a little bit of the tact. And I'm still learning and we're still learning every day. But I think yeah, being an entrepreneur is no, definitely not for everyone. There are the ups and downs. So this is the thing, like when I was speaking to Tom on a previous podcast, he's also a privacy consultant from Ireland. And he was saying he thinks a lot of us are consultants in this game because we like the adrenaline rush from when we close a deal or when we get it, yes. And that yes and th- those highs are worth all the lows that we go through. I totally hear you and getting the yes is unbelievable. And particularly when you're pitching someone and in the beginning, it's really hard to figure out, you know, what do you charge for something, things like that. So in the beginning, you're just kind of like going, okay, I, this sounds about right. And then when people say yes, it's like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> Someone is paying me to do this. And for me, I think that was a very hard thing to shake. I was still working on that is where I'm always, I think that someone's going to find out that, you know, I don't actually know everything about privacy all the time. And I often have to read up on things. And <laughs> Someone is going to stand up and go, she has no idea what she's talking about. Send her away, <laughs> you know, and this imposter syndrome is just forever I think we were speaking to Odia on a previous podcast and I think we were talking about women and how perhaps we think more prone to things like imposter syndrome and things like that do you think it's not necessarily a mindset but something that we've possibly been told we're not good enough and that imposter syndrome maybe rears more in women I've also heard that but it could be also something else maybe it's just that women are more open about feeling it um, that could be a thing. I certainly think that women get underestimated more often. I can only speak from my own experience, but this has definitely happened to me. I've definitely had people try and throw me under the bus as part of a panel and it just makes you look bad when you do it. And I think people forget that. Like the people in the audience tend to be smart people. People, yeah. you know, they see you, we see you. Um, I definitely think that women talk about it more. And I think that if you're applying for a job, you know, if a man has two out of 10 skills, he'll apply for yeah. it. If a woman is missing one, she won't apply, that sort of thing. Maybe that's part of it. I think generally society is harsher on women. Being mm. a woman on the internet is a hard thing. <laughs> and that kind of links into the TED talk that you gave where you were talking about, amongst other things, body dysmorphia, online privacy. Could you tell us a little bit about the TED talk? Absolutely. Yeah. So I was trying to say something useful, in particular, I guess, young women, because I do think that we have a a tougher time on the internet, particularly now with Facetune and filters and all of that. Um, And I kind of shared with the audience that I had a pretty severe eating disorder. I almost died in my early 20s. I ended up in the intensive care unit. And that's a real shock to the system. And that was years ago now, right? Like we discussed my age. So back then we didn't have Instagram and this whole constant influx of perfect people with perfect bodies that may or may not be real, perfect faces, all of this promotion that you need surgery in order to be accepted in society and I think I was kind of before actually delivering that talk I was kind of musing going how hard would it have been for me to actually get over like it's a pretty severe psychological disorder you don't see yourself the way you are 
if I was constantly bombarded with that? Because I think it's really difficult to get away from it, right? You can't really not have a phone. Definitely now in times of COVID, like how are you going to have a social life if you're a young person and you're not on TikTok and Instagram? And I guess those are the only two that are still somewhat acceptable to Gen Z <laughs> Facebook, not used as much as, as I might have used it back in the day. But yeah, I think that was kind of one of the things I discussed and I was kind of talking about once you start looking at certain content, the algorithm gets to know you and gives you more of that content. Like these platforms also kind of know who you are. So we'll already be targeting you with things that might not always be the best for you, depending on your circumstances. I only speak for myself, but I think if being young woman back then who definitely had problems with food, if I kept seeing fake images of very, very perfect thin people all the time, I might have found it more difficult to get well. And then I kind of talk about in the TED Talk, algorithms will just target you and continue to show you stuff so you buy it. So that could be anything. It can also be a diet pill or plastic surgery or other things like that. That might not be in your best interest. Definitely agree with your points. I think it's definitely worse for young people. I'm 27. And so when I was kind of growing up, Facebook was the the big thing, which is not cool anymore, uh, as I've been told. But I've got two younger sisters. One is 13 and one is 11. And they're already on Instagram. They're already seeing things. And I volunteer at a youth club and the girls and the boys, they both have really unrealistic expectations because they're seeing so much on the internet. And it's like, that's not what people look like in real life. No, no one looks like that. But I found the TED Talk really interesting. One thing that you mentioned in the TED Talk, you asked the audience, why do we not demand that these technologies serve humanity rather than undermine it? Do you think as times are getting, I guess, more socially aware, socially conscious, do you think that this is going to get more feasible? I'm not sure if it's going to get more feasible. I think it's going to become more and more important, though. I think we've seen questions being raised at government level, you know, like what has the impact of targeting in particular been on certain things like elections? I think it's actually becoming less feasible um, as more data gets collected with if there aren't the right controls in place. And I also think, you know, there's new companies popping up all the time that might not be under as much scrutiny as some more well-known companies. And some of the damage can then already be done. We know of famous stories like Cambridge Analytica. I don't think anyone ever heard of them, really, unless you were really into that scene. Things went horribly wrong, but we found out after the fact. So I think the awareness around privacy and the damages is definitely more top of mind now. Like it's truly mainstream, right? Like we have Netflix documentaries now and people know. But I also think we still face a privacy paradox where people know privacy is important and they say they care about privacy, but their behavior does not always reflect that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we see companies that are quite large and they're advertising how much they care about your privacy. That's what they're using for you to buy into their brands, buy into their services. But then when you look into the dark patterns they're using and how they're using some of these algorithms, it's anything but caring about your privacy. And you mentioned um, quite a few things about algorithms and dark patterns and uh, how people can get stuck in holes. And th- there's a lot of stuff I came across in the past to, with challenges of people who are pregnant and downloaded pregnancy apps and how is they getting targeted and some women who was unfortunate enough to suffer miscarriages and how it all really started affecting that. And the other really challenging one, say someone's a bit depressed or sad 
or they have some kind of mental health disorder and they're not in a positive place and they might search for a sad quote. The problem is the algorithms now are going to target them with more depressing stuff and it's going to take this person further down this black hole until eventually somebody does the unthinkable. I was really pleased when you were sharing your story on TED Talk that you actually managed to identify there was a problem, do something about it, and now you've recovered and you've had such an amazing journey since then. So I'm super proud of your achievements. I'm so happy for you. Everyone that's listening to this podcast, especially all our female audience across the 53 countries, can really look to you for inspiration and see how it's not realistic to look like the people that you see on Instagram all of the time. You don't have to look like that. Stop thinking about that and go and focus on your career and go and focus on being great. And just look at what Emerald's done in a few years. There is nothing stopping you from doing just as much, if not more. Well, I know you've uh, set a very strong track record there, but at least people can look up to you and say, hey, look, that's some inspiration there. We're going to plug in your website and we're going to plug in your YouTube TED Talks and everything. So for anyone who wants to know a little bit more about Emerald and find out more about the story and all the amazing stuff she's been doing, make sure you click on the links and make sure you connect with Emerald on LinkedIn as well. I think what's really important that I just want to add here is I'm the case in point, right? Maybe not in terms of filters and things like that. But when you read off a bio, it sounds all amazing. But while I was doing some of this stuff, particularly when I was in law school, I still had a really bad problem with food and my life looked really good because I was one of those overachiever types that aced everything and it made it look like I was perfect and super thin because you know in the early 2000s you had to be super super thin and I know Jamila you might be a bit too young to have like really experienced the hell that was the body image of the early 2000s but that was the time when they had this pen test or this pencil test and you had to be as thin as the length of a pen or something I don't even know about that one, but I remember there was a quote like nothing tastes as good as thin feels and all of this nonsense, Mm. right? Loads of things taste way better than thin feels. Trust (laughs) me, I've experienced all the things since. And I think back then, like while it's not related to a filter, like not everything is as it seems, right? So yes, I am 100% fully recovered and I have been for quite a few years now. But I think don't believe everything you see. (laughs) Most Mm. things are not real. And I also think that whoever is listening, right, like it's up to yourself to decide what you're going to do. So are you going to get sucked in to the endless scroll or are you going to double down and do something that is actually serving you? And I think you're right. If people on the internet, they only tend to put the good things up. No one's going to show you what they're doing two o'clock in the morning. They're studying away. Or if they've got a mental health disorder, people don't tend to post that online. These things are hidden. You don't tend to see them. I was so scared to share my story, so scared because I shared my story when things were going very, very well in my career, very well. So it was always going to be a risk. I've only received great response, like even Logitech CEO ended up watching it and sharing it with his entire leadership team. He wow. had not met me. He was like, who is this Emerald person? You need to go yeah. watch your TED Talk. And one of the other leaders in the company who's based in court came up to me and told me this story because she was in that meeting. 
I just found it so nice to see that, you know, you can share something because eating disorders, oh my God, the stigma around it and the judgment, it's not a pretty place even now. I know that people are becoming more accepting of talking about their eating problems, but still the judgment is super harsh because people think, oh, you have an eating disorder because you want to be thin. No, you probably have lost control of certain parts of your life and you're now controlling what you eat. That's what it's about. And I think people judge people really harshly. You even hear people getting called anorexic if they look thin. People could be thin for all sorts of reasons. They could Mm. be sick or they have been under a lot of stress or things like that. So I think the one thing I'm trying to do is break the stigma. And I think the more people who are doing okay or have recovered actually come out and say, hey, I actually had a problem. Mm. I worked through it. You can come out the other side particularly now with life being quite hard as a person online and just seeing all these perfect people all the time. I think the more of that we do, I thought this sounds super corny, but it does kind of start with you. (laughs) I completely agree. Um, In terms of the mental health, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression and I wrote a, a chapter in a book about my experiences with it as a Muslim woman. And I was so nervous putting that out there because I was like, well, future employers are going to see that people who I might be friends with people who I might be in a relationship with. They're all going to see that. I was so nervous. But then when I got feedback and people telling me, wow, you gave me the strength to go and seek help because I know that I'm not the only one suffering. That was kind of a big, yeah, in the same way, I guess you felt putting your story out there and you've had positive comments. Yeah. And I'm sure loads of people also judge me really harshly, but then you can't please everyone, right? That's right. You can't. But what you've both touched on there can resonate that with it. when you make yourself very vulnerable and you open up and you tell everyone how it is people only see all of your successes and they only see what you choose to put out on social media and when we have our personal brands and we're thinking from a business point of view we only put out the highlights the great stuff and nobody actually sees what's happening behind the scenes a few years ago i suffered some bereavement i suffered i lost three children it was very scary for me to openly talk about that and post about that on linkedin and especially what's known as a business platform but when i did a lot of people found it quite inspiring uh, just like Emerald, your stories were inspiring and Jimmy, like just like your chapters were inspiring and I think people like that human side of things because when people are watching from a distance or they just see your achievements they think oh this guy's got it all or this woman's got it all or look at Emerald, she's just an overachiever but they don't see all of the hard stuff and the resilience it takes to really get through that And I think once you're on the right path, once you've overcome the worst of it, and you're on the path to seeing the light and recovering and you share that story, it can actually be quite liberating as well. Totally agree with you on on the liberation part for me, because once I shared it, I felt I was truly past it because I felt Mm. it was no longer me. That might sound a bit strange if you've not gone through something like that, but I don't identify with that person who had all of these problems anymore. I feel like I'm a new person now, you know, I'm an evolved individual. And of course, there's always so much more room for growth and learning and making mistakes and doing all the things. But I think once you put it out into the world, first of all, there's no going back, which there's something really interesting about that um, and liberating, like you said, but also there is a self-acceptance where you just go right this actually happened to me and it's okay. I'm still here. Mm. Thank you for sharing this. This podcast is very not... deep today. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. It's going in a completely different direction than I imagined. We've, we're talking about the things that matter most. 
And I'm sure everyone that's listening is going to really benefit and value and will resonate with what we're discussing in their own ways. You've had all of these great successes and you've had all of these challenges, been in a very bad situation where you almost died. What is it that drives you to excel and be as great as you are? And how do you deal with setbacks? Thank you. To be honest, success is just like a fleeting thing, right? Like it's something that's more perceived by others rather than at least perceived by me. I think that's part of it. And yeah, I've done a lot of things, but I've also just been given a lot of opportunities. Some of it was being in the right place at the right time. A lot of it was just me asking people questions and reaching out to people and things like that. I think one of the most important strategies I have is When I have a bad day, I force myself to only let it be a bad day. You know, like something terrible happens. Let's say you lose a big deal or you got rejected for something. I allow myself 24 hours to wallow in self-pity because you do need a little bit of wallowing. Sometimes it just needs to happen. You need to feel sorry for yourself, pour yourself a cup of tea, crawl into a blanket. But then the next day that needs to be done. So there is some self-discipline in that. And I'm self-disciplined to the extreme, which is why I probably ended up with such a bad case of anorexia. (laughs) But I think just focusing on the next thing, I actually want to get less good at this because I think I have a habit of achieving something and then being, okay, that's done now. What's next? Next one, yes. Yeah, instead of being, well, that was really great. I should probably enjoy this moment, smell the roses, and just maybe take it easy for a little while. But that's not in my nature. And I think that's okay too. I I don't think it's that healthy to always, as long as you're managing your health and making sure you're sleeping well, eating well, maybe we don't even talk enough about the importance of sleep and nutrition and fitness, which I am very passionate about now, particularly because I've seen what bad nutrition, loss of fitness and all of that looks like. Um, I'm now very precious about making sure that I'm doing the right things to make sure that I can perform at a high level. Because let's be honest, being a privacy professional these days also is not for the faint hearted. It's hard work. And I'm sure everybody who's listening knows this. I actually really enjoy my job. But I think that working in privacy is pretty intense. (laughs) So you need to be in good shape and to ensure that you're energized yeah absolutely it's funny you mentioned those things because it's something that i've actually been focusing on for the last three weeks now this is week three of me my new uh, focus and commitment to health and yeah you're right look privacy is very intensive running your business can be very intensive i'm a little bit like you and i'm always focusing on the next one so for me it's like okay this is the goal we've done it excellent next what's the next one sometimes the teams are like hang on a minute let's just stop and celebrate this and just let us be for a bit it's not the next one straight away so I completely get that but one thing I realized is sleep is so important and all this time I thought like if I work a little bit harder if I just sleep for maybe four hours five hours that's enough and then I can get up and I'm like superman but it catches up with you and um, recently I had to go and see the doctor and they was like well if you carry on like this you're going to have a stroke or a heart attack and I was like wow I can't believe it took me to hear that to decide I'm going to make some changes And so three weeks ago, I went and signed up to the gym and I started thinking about my nutrition and sleep and water. And I'm consciously trying to make sure that I make less time for work and more time for the other stuff in life that matters as well. 
Because like you said, those things are super important. And now when I'm speaking to my mentees, uh, even then I'm saying, hey guys, how's it going? Have you made enough time to rest? Have you made enough time to eat properly? Don't just keep ordering takeaways. And it's become a new focus. And the thing is, I'm, I'm actually really enjoying my new lifestyle of trying to eat better, trying to drink more water, sleeping better. And I feel so much better. I feel like actually I'm making sharper decisions. I'm sharper, I'm fitter. I'm actually getting more out of the time that I'm working than previously when I was working a lot harder, but not achieving as much and not getting as much done. So sleep, nutrition, having that healthy mind and just switching off and going and sitting in a spa or whatever. I think all of those things are really important. And actually, it's going to make your performance better, not worse. That's what I've found so far in the last three weeks. That's a great story. I think you're doing absolutely the right thing. And I think you're completely on the ball. That's also my experience. I think that no one is 100% productive for their entire work day all the time. And sometimes you have off days and sometimes you have amazing days because you've got like the best sleep of your life and you're in the flow and things are just going. And then some days like nothing happens because your brain is broken. We all have those days too. For me, what got me out of the eating disorder was first of all, just starting to eat, which was really scary. But also balancing that with exercise, because one of the things that happens to bodies if they go without nutrition for a long time is you can lose bone density and things like that. So mm-hmm. weightlifting and stuff becomes really important. So I've been weightlifting now probably for over 10 years and I still wow. do it. I have a little home gym set up. It's not much, but does the job. I do quite a lot of high intensity interval training now as well, which I didn't do for many years because I kind of cut out cardio because I figured I need to do everything to ensure I have the best recovery possible. If you've had an eating disorder, there's the cardio can be a trap, right? Because you shouldn't be working off what you're actually eating in order to put on the weight. So for me, I kind of banned that, but because I was fully recovered, I really took that up again. So I do a lot. There's a program, it's called Les Mills On Demand. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. I am obsessed with body attack and body combat. I love it so much. And I do it all the time. And it's one of those sessions, like if I'm not like in a pile of sweat on the floor, it didn't happen. I think very type A across the board. I think that's probably (laughs) clear from this whole conversation, but I just really enjoy it. And I think it's really good for your stress levels and will bring down the blood pressure. So you should look into that if you haven't already. Yeah, so I find that to something with with my club, it's called Blaze. And it's like hit the workout training. So you've got three different stations. You've got the treadmill for the cardio stuff. You've got to do nine minutes. So you do three minute bursts. And then you've got the section in the middle with the free weights. And you do that. And then you've got the combat zone. So throughout the nine minutes, you do three minutes on station one, three minutes on station two, three minutes on station three. And you start again. And by the end, you are a bucket of sweat. You know, you're ready to go and have a deep sleep. But then... What I found that's really amazing is they've got this ice pool downstairs. So you go and you jump straight into that. And the first time I jumped in, I remember I was like, <gasps> and I jumped straight back out again. But now I can go in and I'm focusing on my breathing and I can stay up to about three minutes earlier this morning. So it's actually working really well. And the other thing I like doing is I've, I take a class called Spirit. It's a little bit like a hybrid of yoga and Pilates. Because we're sitting on our desk all the time, it can lead to lower back complaints. And especially when you put on a little bit of weight around your belly like I have and you need to lose it, it's definitely a good thing. So I'm finding that these stretching and these the balancing is actually really helping me and really helping to, not just from a fitness point of view, but when it comes to business decisions, it's actually helping me take a step back and make better and more balanced decisions as well. So I'm actually very positively surprised how 
all of these changes, all of this stuff that I've never made time for because I was so obsessed with working all the time, how that's actually been denying myself of being able to perform at the level I can. And I think as time goes by, it's only going to get better. And I was thinking on my way back earlier this afternoon, I can't believe this, but I'm actually someone who enjoys going to the gym now and I have to come every single day. And I was like, wow, I, I never thought I'd hear myself say that. Yeah, and I, it's surprising. It's so good for your mental health as well, right? Like I know that if I'm stressed or if I really don't want to work out, I try to make myself, like I say, say 20 minutes, right? Just 20, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I always feel better. Like there hasn't been a day that I've done a workout and that I didn't want to do that I felt worse afterwards. Has never happened. And let me demonstrate something. And I didn't put this on for the interview because you don't want to be slightly out of breath during an interview. But I am actually on treadmill desk. So normally when I'm on meetings, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. So this is a standing desk with a treadmill yeah. underneath it because I am on Zoom a lot. Yeah. And I'm really cool with that. I don't mind it. I love talking to people, but I did have back problems from sitting down too much. So I got a treadmill for under my desk. Wow. I kind of want one now. Yeah, they're great. They're a bit of an investment, but I bought mine, I think it was December, and I use it every single day that I'm working. I highly, highly rate them. Jamal, if I get one, can I claim it on expenses? We'll talk about that separately. <laughs> anyway, there's this there's this book I want to introduce everyone to, changing the subject, Jamila. Matthew Walker, and it's about why we sleep. And like, I can't stress to you how important this book is and how it really shifted my perception on why I need to get enough sleep and why we must sleep. So I recommend this and I'll, you know, I'll probably put a link into the podcast for everyone. Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. It's an international bestseller. If you're you're in privacy and you're working as hard as any of us that I know we do in privacy, then please make sure that you at least the minimum you do is get at least seven hours sleep a night because it's so important. Ideally. I think personally for me seven hours is not enough I'm I'm quite religious about my sleep and I get very grumpy if I don't get to go to bed when I want to go to bed I take it very seriously and not because of the book which I've also read I think I just feel like rubbish if I'm underslept how many hours do you is the ideal sleep for you about eight anyway because particularly if I've exercised if I've exercised intensely like body needs to recover from that right particularly muscle recovery if you've been weightlifting my I just need sleep and Mm. I also don't work as an insane person anymore like I used to be one of these seven days a week sort of people when I had my own company and just work all the time and be sending out emails on a Sunday morning because I knew be top of inbox on the Monday when these people got back into work and all of the other tricks of the book genuinely don't do it anymore and my work is way better for it like when I'm at work I'm in great form I get way more done my brain is more organized I like I sleep is so important I second that 100% I I third it I love sleeping (laughs) if I could get 11 hours a night I would Um, but that's impossible unfortunately so we covered a lot we've covered sleep nutrition fitness let's get back on to GDPR and data privacy this week we've seen that the culture secretary in the UK is wanting to move the UK away from GDPR do you think that will happen Well, let me come in there a little bit before uh, we hear from what Emerald has to say, being in the UK. So look, I read the articles in the the broadsheets and Mm -hmm. this culture secretary, he's talking about cookies. Cookies are the e-privacy directory. We're talking about PECA, not GDPR, right? 
And I think this is just a political statement he's making because, look, Brexit happened. Businesses are suffering. No one's seen any benefit from Brexit. So what can we do? Oh, hey, we've Brexited. We're going to come up with our own data protection laws and it's going to make it much better for everyone. I think it's just political rhetoric. I don't think there's anything really behind it. And if there was going to be anything behind it, we've seen Brussels today announce that, hey, if you go away too much, we're going to stop sharing information with you guys. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But the war of words has already begun. Emerald, what's your take on it? I hope not. I actually think the GDPR is a very well-written piece of legislation, and I think it has done very good things. I know that there is obviously, I've heard all of the criticism and it's cumbersome for small businesses. I mean, that is actually true. There's hard to deny that. But I do think in terms of the individuals who are impacted by privacy and data protection laws, I think that GDPR was actually a pretty good move for people. I often think that's a really helpful argument, right? Like, I'm just very conscious of the goal of this podcast, and I feel terribly guilty about waffling about mental health problems for a very, very long time. So to say something somewhat helpful is everyone is a person first, and everyone has a family, and you can make privacy very personal very quickly in order to get your point across. My take is, I hope not, but I really don't know enough about UK politics to weigh in with something super sensible here. So I'll leave it at that. That's interesting. And I, I was reading the articles. It said he wants to allow data be, to be treated like oil as a multi-billion. Oh, no, not the data is oil argument. That is, isn't that like very 2001? <laughs> 22 hours ago this was reported i know but i mean that argument that used to be a thing right when everyone was like collect all the data and i think we now know that more is not always more well i mean this is the challenge with some of the leaders we have in some of the government departments and sitting in the house of parliament with the uk this is people who are running the country so we hope we see positive change (laughs) we hope so Emerald, so you've just been accepted onto the Stanford LEAD program. Can you tell us a bit more about that and why you think it's important to continuously seek new education, new certifications? It's six years since I completed my last actual degree. So, and I like to keep learning and I think I have a very different role now than I used to have. Right. So I only became the head of privacy at Logitech in January this year. So that's quite recent for me. And I've never been in a global leadership in a company the size of Logitech before. So I really want to do a good job. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to learn more about how businesses are run, particularly like public companies. It's really important for me to understand my colleagues and understand the other leaders in the business so I can understand what they're thinking and where they're going and that I can have an intelligent conversation with them that isn't just focused. You know, you can't really go into the meeting just with your own, this is what I want kind of attitude. You need to listen to people and then figure out how you can help them achieve their goals while also ensuring that privacy of the individual is respected and that you comply with the law. So for me, it was very much, how do I plug the gaps in my knowledge? And it seemed like a sensible next step to do something that was executive education. And then the second part of it was, it's Stanford. (laughs) So I was like, I would love to go to Stanford. And I have never envisioned myself to be able to do something like this. Mm -hmm. So when I learned about the program and the type of profile that they were looking for I said you know what 
maybe this is the thing because it's something that I can do while doing my job, as opposed to a lot of other more intense educational programs. So that was the main driver for this particular one for me. But I think in general, right, like if you're not learning, you're standing still. And generally speaking, and I know my bio calls me an expert, but that was written a while ago. The (laughs) the Stanford edition was kind of bolted on at the end. But I think the moment you are very focused on how much of an expert you are, you're not focusing on what you still need to learn. And I really try to focus on, okay, what do I not know yet that I should probably know? So I think that everyone benefits from that, right? To make sure that you're continuously kind of working on yourself within reason. I don't subscribe to hustle culture. I think that was clear from our sleep conversation there earlier, but I think that it's important to give yourself something to work on outside of your day job. I like to have something else. I know that might seem strange, But I love my job and I really enjoy what I do. But I also really enjoy having my own personal development goals outside of my career. And I think it's it's a healthy thing to have. I think uh, what you said really resonates with the message we tried to deliver through the Previously Pros Academy. You could always be seeking to constantly improve and progress. There's one thing having a day job. And yes, you can achieve a certain certification. But you're just only touching or seeing the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that you don't even know that you don't know about. And it's only when you start looking, you discover there's this whole new world out there. And it's important to make sure that you have that sense of achievement and that sense of fulfillment. For me, anyway, I feel like if I haven't achieved something or if I can't say I'm fulfilled, then I have to go and find something to work towards, to challenge me, to learn, to grow, to develop so that I can create more value. And actually, I can be more at peace with myself, knowing that I am not standing in one place, staying stagnant. And I think some of the challenges we see sometimes with a lot of people is the mindset where they feel like they've achieved something and that's it. And the next thing they know, they look around a year's time and everyone else who never had that certification before has achieved that certification and two more or got more education somewhere. And they're thinking, hang on a minute, what happened? They're no longer relevant and they're outdated. So it's very important to make sure that we stay on top of things and we actually understand what's new, what's happening. And in privacy with all of this AI tech and all these new things coming in and this innovation and an innovative use of technology, it's really important to make sure that we're always keeping up, keeping up to date and on the ball. Yeah. And I also think just for anyone who's listening, it's very normal to always feel like you're at least 10 steps behind because that's how I feel constantly in privacy because it's moving very quickly, particularly if you're looking at it globally. But yeah, I, I totally second that. And like, and I know that there's also something to be said for homeostasis sometimes, right? But doing one maybe not too overwhelming thing a year is a nice thing. I like to have one like big thing I do every year. Like one year that might be a TED talk, another year it might be something else, something that requires a bit of work. Because that's the thing, right? With giving a good talk, so much time went into the prep. It looks like you just go up there and you you stand there and give a talk and you're just like off the cuff. But anything sounds really off the cuff, but still full of great it was super rehearsed. I rehearsed absolute death. Jamal's got more books to show everyone. Talk like Ted. I bought that book years ago when I was a huge Ted fan. Never thinking I'd actually be so lucky as to be invited to do one. I, I must have. I'd say. 100 plus hours of practice. Wow, amazing. That's the truth behind it. (laughs) 
<laughs> we are coming to the end of the podcast. So our last question for you, Emerald, is an opportunity to ask Jamal a question. So I know that we have quite a mental health focus here, but I think when talking about privacy and data, it's these days especially really hard to avoid, right? Like when you're training algorithms on data that contains biases and other stuff we don't really want to perpetuate. And also the depression example that um, Jamal gave was very on point. I would ask you, what do you think is the most important thing companies can do to ensure their products and services don't damage the mental health through the improper use of data? That's a fantastic question. I think the most important they can do is to make sure that they actually have somebody in the company who is just checking to see, hey, how cool is this or how creepy is it on the cool to creepy scale? As long as there is somebody there who has some kind of exposure or experience to some of the great stuff you do, Emerald, with the ethics side of things, then I think they can you really have those balances in check. And one thing you mentioned earlier is you said genuinely companies always want to do the right thing, but sometimes that purpose or scope and that creep scope goes so far away because of what's possible in some of these IT tech meetings that might happen in another part of the world that when you suddenly take a step back and look and you're like, wow, how did we get to this stage? Like nobody sees it happening. You have such a tunnel vision. It's like, oh, and it can do this and it can do this and we can even do this. And isn't it great that we can do this? But you don't actually take a step back to see what is the impact this is happening on the actual data subject or the user whose data we're manipulating this way or that we're collecting in this way or that we're feeding into this great algorithm that we've created. And I think as long as companies make sure that they appoint somebody or someone takes that responsibility to say, hey, I'm going to be the voice of reason and I'm going to take a step back. To, I'm going to come and check what's happening and what we're doing here to make sure that we maintain that balance and it stays cool rather than goes creepy. So I think that's probably the best thing they could do is make sure they appoint someone, just like you appoint a data protection officer or a privacy officer or a CISO, have somebody who will actually come and be that check. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And it, at the end of the day, it's always funny. It always comes back down to human intervention. The machine can't do it. It still has to be a person who goes, hang on a second, that's probably unintentional consequences are probably not what you want to do Mm. um and that's kind of where my initial comment came from which is where i was saying you know most people don't set out to do something bad i choose to believe that most people are inherently good people you know i know not everyone agrees with that view of the world but i think you have a better life that way I think that was my favorite question for Jamal so far. I found that really interesting. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Emerald. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yes, thank you, Emerald. It's been an absolute privilege to spend the last hour speaking with you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released. Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class Privacy Pro. Please leave us a four or five star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at Until next time, peace be with you.